Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. We are recording as usual at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles. Pod Sequentialism is presented by Gallery 30 South, La Luz de Jesus Gallery, and the Wacko Soap Plant Superstore. And I also want to, uh, right at the top of the program, and this is not a solicited advert, but um, lately a lot of friends of mine have been getting into car accidents. And one thing that has been in the aftermath of these things, and luckily with not a lot of people being injured, a savior has been dash cams. And I'm not going to tell you to run out and buy a specific brand, but I do highly endorse it. Uh, My friend uh, Steve Diacchetti, He's a very well-known erotic photographer, was completely blindsided, and if he was in a car that was less safe, he might have been crippled. And the way that the accident happened might have been very difficult to explain at the angle of impact as a car went through a red light and smashed into him had he not been able to point to the footage on his dash cam, which made it very easy for the insurance companies and police to figure out what had happened. I, too, was also sideswiped not long ago, And if I had not had my dash cam, it would have been a very different outcome. And actually, very oddly in my case, I've I've become kind of friends with the person who I got into the car accident with. But the upside of all of these types of things is that it gives you foresight. You don't buy an umbrella when it's raining. You buy it before it rains. And so I really, really encourage everybody out there to go out and, you know, look into an inexpensive dashboard cam because it's just going to be... It's a lot easier for you if something bad should happen. I mean, not the least of which is that if someone breaks into your car and doesn't know where the camera's at, you may have them captured on camera. I know it, uh, most dash cams are set to a vibration so that it, it starts um, recording at a specific time or it, it does a sequence where it will, it'll tape for 20 seconds and recycle and the, or a half a minute and recycle. And then if there's a vibration, it continues to record and it keeps it. So that's one thing that uh, can be very, very useful if it comes to litigation. Another thing, completely unsolicited, that I want to talk to people about is Ring, which is a doorbell activated app for your phone with a camera that allows you to see who's ringing your buzzer. Whether you're home or not, you can tell there's been a lot of uh, break-ins lately, not just in Los Angeles, but all over the place of people ringing a doorbell just to see if someone is home and then if they're not breaking in. And if you can answer with your own voice, it may dissuade somebody from trying to, you know, pull something a little uh, a little illegal. So something else you might want to look into. That is a specific brand, and it does no good for you to tell anybody that I sent you because, as I said, it's unsolicited. But since I know a lot of people that listen to the show are comic book creators and tastemakers, if you don't have it installed at this point, you probably should can save you from a lot of uncomfortable interactions with people that you maybe didn't want to interact with. So now that that's aside, now that my public service announcement is out of the way, I get to do a show which is going to make me happy and a lot of other people unhappy, and it's the I Told You So show. If you listened to our our episode on cryptocurrency back in September, we told you to buy Ethereum. Ethereum is a cryptocurrency that you can buy with Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency on any of the exchanges. And if you had bought that day and even that week, if you had purchased $100 worth of Ethereum, today it would be worth $1,700. That is an incredible return on investment. It is an unheard of return on investment. It's 17 times the rate that it was at. This pretty much has never happened on any stock exchange board has there been such a sharp and steady rise in the value of any commodity. And uh, Mason, my producer, actually did buy some Ethereum that day. I did. And when I, was, I told I him- I was swayed by your, your compelling argument. Yes. And so had a 17-time return on investment, which is pretty great. Yeah, it was great. And I, I bought $10, and now I have 170 There you go. It's nice times. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we do talk about on this show, and we certainly do talk about comics and, and sequential art and pop art and etiquette and, and that type of thing. And I'm going to talk about a few of those things again today. 
But there's also, I have on experts who really do know what they're talking about. And I don't have a lot of people that don't know what they're talking about. So you can pretty much take a lot of the advice with uh, some confidence, not with a grain of salt. So when we've done shows, as we have with Scott Bivin, who is who is our cryptocurrency expert, and when we've done shows on nutrition and health with Dr. DNA, I'm, I'm here to tell you that these people really do know what they're talking about. And when they're offering up examples of diet or eating or investment, that this is a good thing. And of course, you know, the lawyers are going to make us say that this is, we're not giving, you know, legal invest, investment advice. And I, I guess I have to concur with that. But understand that there is a little bit of value to the show aside the entertainment value, if that's why you're listening. And I wanted to also bring everybody up to date. There's, we've mentioned a couple of times on the program that I entered into an experimental um, research program for diet and digestion. And yesterday was my last day. So after 63 days on this particular diet, which involved taking some enzymes with uh, a very regimented and specific food intake program, I lost 27 and a half pounds. So I started at 180, 181, and I'm currently at 154 and a half. I've been maintaining that weight for about a week. The the big system, I think, behind all of this, and, and, and this is without any exercise at all. This is not, you know, doing some push-ups or sit-ups even. This isn't doing a couple of curls, whether it be leg curls or arm curls or anything. No, zero exercise. This is just living my life and adjusting my eating habits. And when I did have a personal trainer several years ago, he's very fond of saying that you can never out-train a bad diet. What you can do, however, is you can, with the right diet and not a silly diet, not a diet that you cannot maintain, you will have dramatic and positive effects. Now, people have asked, well, now that you're off the diet, you know, are you afraid of, of ballooning back? And I have to say no, because I don't plan on varying my diet on going very much from what it was while I was on the program. So my, my eating program was uh, initially four ounces of protein, four ounces of vegetables, and four ounces of fruit twice a day and taking a dietary supplement, some vitamins in, in the middle of that. And then after the first month and a half, switching or actually adding breakfast so that there was some additional protein. So in the morning, I would add, and then all the protein amounts would go up. So I'd have six ounces of protein in the morning, then six ounces of protein and four ounces of fruits and vegetables for two other meals. And I've been maintaining, I, I know that I can continue to lose weight, if I adjust my intake amounts back down and I, I don't have any intention of going back to eating some of the stuff that I knew my body wasn't reacting well to, things like gluten, and I don't have celiac, but I uh, I did notice for a very long time and, and so I stayed away from wheat. I noticed that it was not making me feel well and I noticed also after doing this diet how dramatic the effect of sugar is on the body that I had gone to a poke bar for dinner. And I, there's one that's very close to where I live, and I missed the cutoff for them closing and had to go to a different poke bar. And their spicy sauce had a sweetener in it, and it, they didn't say that when I ordered it. And I could tell immediately when I tasted it that there, it had some kind of sweetener in it. And um, while I knew that it wasn't, something that I was used to consuming, I still had to eat and I ate it and I could feel the effect of the sugar on my, in my body immediately. The way that you might be able to feel the effects of caffeine if you, you know, have gone a while without having caffeine and you take, you know, a big deep swig off of, you know, a Coke or a Diet Coke or a cup of coffee and you can feel that caffeine enter your system and you, you feel that immediately. I've, I noticed that I'm really, my body is very conscious of, of what I'm putting into it after this very specific regimen. And if you are looking to, to lose weight, I highly endorse it. I, I think that, you know, even without the enzymes, I think that it will have a very positive effect on your intake. There are things that you're going to want to stay away from, things like bananas and avocados. Um, no dairy products on this, no grains. And 
you can have a lot of free vegetables. You can have as many cucumbers as you want. You can have as much cabbage. You know, anything really water-rich you can you can snack on or you can extend during your mealtime. Uh, pretty much salad ingredients without having carrots. Don't eat carrots because those are all sugar. But tomatoes, you can have that type of stuff. So you don't really have to worry about not feeling full. You just have to worry about adjusting to not having the stuff that you were having before, which is what has caused you to main, you know, to gain weight and for it to be the bad weight, not muscle weight. So moving forward, I'll be adding back into my daily ritual some exercise. And so I'm probably going to continue to lose a little bit of weight in order to level back up when I add on muscle mass. So again, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a fitness expert. I encourage anybody who has any before embarking on any kind of diet or exercise program to consult a physician first to see if it's something that you can safely do. But in my case, I wasn't dramatically obese, but I was overweight for my height and for my age. And I I have to also say that I lost about two and a half or three pants sizes on this diet. So that uh, yesterday I I was wearing a pair of Balmain jeans and they have a kind of a double um, snap, like not the above the fly. There's, There's two little slide catches for the pants. I actually had to take the slide that was all the way to the left and bring it to the the hoop that was all the way to the right, which looked a little ridiculous, but other than my pants wouldn't stay up, and uh, covered it with a belt. So more information than anybody wanted. Now, what I also wanted to talk about, and I guess this is, well, not I guess, I know that it is. It's a very personal thing, and it's, you know, specifically about me, and I think that, you know, some people who are following me on, on some social media are probably aware that my mom passed away a little bit over a month ago. And my mom was very supportive of my collecting comics as um, in, in my early teens and, and in my youth. And I think she was of the opinion that anything that I was reading was good. And so did not have a problem with me reading what my dad would have called funny books. And often drove me to the comic book shop, waited for me would drive me to comic conventions sometimes um, well out of her way and then go home and then drive back when it was time to pick me up, sometimes four or five hours later. And without that type of support, I don't think that I would have been able to have developed the love and appreciation that I did develop for comic books over the years. And it made me realize today that there have been so few stories in comics that really address death in a non-heroic, non-cliched way. And when those deaths are addressed as such, they tend to have a very dramatic and long-lasting effect on people. And I mean, you can point to the deaths of major characters in comics and, and it definitely having had a profound effect on fans. I mean, when I was a kid, it was definitely the death of Jean Grey in the X-Men as part of the Dark Phoenix saga. And of course we know that everybody stays dead except for Bucky who else, I mean, nobody stays dead except for Bucky who then of course did not stay dead, breaking even that rule. But there really hasn't been a lot of realistic natural cause death in comics. You know, there. Aunt May being maybe the only notable exception, you know, that that she died of old age. She didn't die because of of the many times she was kidnapped and hospitalized in battles with the Green Goblin or others. But that character was such a sort of hollow and unpopulated character that she was really just kind of scenery. She was only there to kind of propel the the Peter Parker storyline along, not even necessarily forward. And one thing that's interesting to me is there were such great stories in The Amazing Spider-Man, but the writing was still very much for a juvenile audience, even as a lot of the better stories that came along when Peter David started writing, like the the death of Craven the Hunter and the death of Gene DeWolf, that, um, that those two story arcs were, one of those isn't written by Peter David, but those two stories kind of got, took the Spider-Man character into a more adult direction, and it proved to be very unpopular with the fan base because that fan base had been younger. Um, So if you look across the spectrum of, 
you know, our beloved comic book characters, only one, well, I guess two really, but one early on in the life of the graphic novel was Jim Starlin's The Death of Captain Marvel. And it was sort of genius because you have this godlike, cosmic-powered hero who, as a result of his cosmic power, develops cancer and dies in a hospital. So he dies in a hospital bed. You know, he's it's he didn't die with his boots on, as they used to say in in um, in military speak and in the westerns. He was cut down by a disease that could kill anybody, and. It was a beloved story. I think it's still, you know, one of the the best comic stories that have ever been told. And it elevated, I think, the expectation of storytelling within the comic medium. But because it was published as a graphic novel and it was not published within the confines of a regular continuity story arc, it didn't have as good, not good, as strong an impact as it might have if it had been during regular continuity. And I think that Marvel was sort of afraid to kill off a main character and decide that that was how it was going to enter back into the, into the Marvel Universe at that time. Certainly also, over at DC, you know, 30 years later, Grant Morrison's groundbreaking all-star Superman is a very similar story of Superman realizing that he is too dying from cancer, that he's developed a, a very humanish disease as a result of his, you know, cosmic powers. And having the ability to tell that story over 12 issues is a great gift to comic fans because he got to really delve into how personal and affecting that Superman's death was to the people around him and not just in a in a, a big-picture way but in a, a very microcosmic way you know the that you have to prepare if you're someone with that much power and responsibility uh dying if if you know you're dying if you're if you're prepared for it is something that you have to prepare others for and i haven't really been aware of too many other deaths in the comics that were presented that way the there's a great story it's a one shot in the amazing spider-man called the kid who collects collected spider-man about Spider-Man visiting this this boy, a sick boy at a hospital, and you know, as sort of like a make a wish type of thing. And I, if I'm not mistaken, that story might have taken place before the Make a Wish Foundation existed. And interestingly, I guess that that means that perhaps, and we can't say for sure, that you know, fiction influenced reality in a good way. But it was also sort of a a really quick one-off story. And it was not a main character. It wasn't somebody that you had been aware of and grown to care about and, and saw die in a in a very realistic way. It was sort of a gimmick in a way, a very well-written gimmick. And, and I don't mean to belittle the the writers or even Marvel for, for publishing it. I think it was a great story, especially in the time that it was published. But it uh, lacked a certain amount of depth that would have come from perhaps that character being someone Spider-Man had gone to school with and someone that we had been aware of and, and had been, you know, popping into the comic every once in a while and then had a several-issue story arc. You know, you, you don't really often see people going through chemotherapy in in comics. You don't see people... You don't see the parents or grandparents of characters suffering from dementia. And I think that that opens up a great possibility for these things. I'm sure that, that people have thought of it I'm sure that a lot of com- comic book creators have people in their lives who've who have died of natural causes, who have died with extended illnesses, and maybe it's too personal for them to be able to put into a story. But maybe it isn't, and maybe it's just personal enough that it can become a subject. And so, I was going to ask, and I will ask Mason, uh, our, our engineer, a couple questions about some of the stories that have impacted him in comics over the years. And especially real-world type stuff, you know, the the things that were maybe unexpected. And certainly there have been a lot of issue-oriented, you know, and by issue I mean current issue, not, you know, issue number, um, topics that have been highlighted in comics. In the mid-80s, there was three or four 
one-shot specials addressing child abuse. You know, the Elementals one, I think, was the best. And Bill Willingham was both drawing and writing Elementals. And now most comic fans know Bill only as the writer of Fables. And his pencils were incredible. And the comic was very vividly colored. It was published by Kamiko, who had done Mage and Grendel and quite a few of the other uh, cutting-edge stuff that was coming out through the, the secondary publishers at that time in the 80s. But uh, there are any of those types of issues that you were personally fond of growing up, issues of, you know, topical issues within the continuity of comics that you were reading that really affected you? Yeah, there were a couple. Well, which do you want to talk about first, deaths or issues? I guess issues. When I was a kid, I was a huge Green Lantern fan, and I followed the exploits of Hal Jordan. He was my favorite. And then, of course, John Stewart, who came after and was famously a black Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. And they had a several, I don't remember the numbers, but they had a several-issue series on apartheid. Right. Which... I had no idea what that was at yeah. the time. It was this huge deal going on in Africa and South Africa. And that really educated me. Nobody talked about it at school. Yeah. I mean, I knew apartheid existed and I knew it was race-based, but mm-hmm. I didn't know much about it at all. And yet here was this Green Lanterns like in Africa dealing with it. Right. This is very interesting too because the creative team on Green Lantern at that time was predominantly British. Oh, cool. You know, and uh, Dave Gibbons was drawing Green Lantern for quite a while. Mm -hmm. This was before he would do Watchmen, but he came over as part of that British invasion from 2000 AD, a lot of people that were working on 2000 AD. There's a great documentary right now on Netflix about 2000 AD, the comic. I really recommend people check it out. The apartheid issue, I mean, if you were a fan of the band U2, they were starting to bring it up at concerts, and they were getting a lot of traction for it. And I think that that was the first point of entry for a lot of Americans to understand what apartheid was. Sure. And this was at that same time. So you've got this issue that takes place in South Africa, not an English province. Right. Um, But the British have always had kind of big A big presence. Yeah. yeah, And so interestingly, when you see a topic like that being tackled, and that did get the attention it deserved. That that was like a three or four issue story mm-hmm. arc, as I, as I recall. And I remember seeing it on the covers, and I wasn't reading Green Lantern, but I do remember seeing it at the time when it was hitting the newsstands. And I mean, aside from the fact that you had the only visible African-American superhero in like a major team, like a sure. Justice League type setting. Yeah. Because certainly over at Marvel, you also had Iron Man. You know, there was uh, the 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 taking over of the Iron Man suit when Tony Tony Stark gives up the Iron Man suit for a little while. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you have a, an African-American, specifically African-American man in the Iron Man armor. And in the Teen Titans being written by Marvel Wolfman, you had Cyborg, who's, of course, going to be part of the Justice League. Right. Interestingly, I don't know. I don't know why. It's it's odd that they're grabbing one of the the Titans one and the putting into Titans. the Justice League. Uh, he he briefly kind of moonlit as uh, part of the Justice League for a little bit, mm-hmm. and then I guess they just decided to bring him on full time. It would have been smarter, I think, if they had gone with, you know, the Green Lantern instead. He's a much more recognizable character to most people. There are rumors now. Have you seen Wonder Woman? Yeah. Yeah. There are rumors. If you look at the opening sequence of the comic images in Wonder Woman, it goes in order of how they were introduced. So it goes Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Flash, Cyborg. And at the end, there's Green Lantern. So It's a white Green Lantern, though, right? Yeah, it's Hal Jordan. Yeah. Now, the I hate that new animation, by the way. That weird kind of Kingdom Come-looking thing. I, I don't like it as much as I liked the old. And Marvel's changed theirs too. Like I love the pages. Right. You know, the pages of the actual comics being behind that logo as it gets further away from you so you can tell that it says Marvel and the Marvel ones. And DC sort of aped it and maybe they changed it because right. they felt they were aping it. But then Marvel changed theirs. Yeah, well, you know, it's a constant war. Style Wars part three comics. Right. I mean, once Marvel got bought by Disney it's it's, it's gotten well they acquired the rights or whatever. Mm-hmm. I have to say this in defense of of that and I mean not necessarily that it needs to be defended, but when I put together the pop sequentialism catalog, I had to contact all the publishers for permission mm-hmm. to include the works in in another book and because it was an academic publication that was only praising and was not critical of anything, 
uh, which I pointed out when I talked to them. Oh, you'd have to. <laughs> they well, they didn't care honestly. They they were kind of of the opinion that any coverage was good coverage, but that it was super easy to get clearance from Marvel. Cool. They just said whichever whatever comics we've published, just put copyright Marvel and the year, and if it's a comic that is independently distributed via one of these labels then add the creators names on and it took me a little bit longer to get a response from dc but they were pretty quick too Mm -hmm. and it was a very different experience than that which i had had in licensing marvel animated features for the uk when i was at liberation entertainment Mm -hmm. where they were not yet bought by disney right and getting an answer on anything took weeks and months wow so from my point of view all of the logistics of operation were vastly improved by by Disney taking over Marvel. I, I'm sure, and I'm sure it helps when you have a mega billion dollar corporation who has you know buildings full of lawyers to handle yeah. whatever comes their way. I mean, you know, it gives a, it gives a sense of security. So, but I would have thought that that would have slowed the process instead of sped the process. I guess it could go either way. I yeah. could I can certainly see how it would slow the process, but I can also understand how they're like listen. Yeah. If you're just do it and we'll deal with it if anything happens. Right, right. This is a company that rewrote the copyright law, went to Congress and rewrote the copyright law so well, that they extended the copyright law to protect right. Mickey Mouse so that Mickey Mouse would not be touched. Yeah. And but they also there was a precedent in the extension of the copyright for Peter Pan. Sure. For the the um the Barry Foundation which all of the all if if in case people don't know this um Barry, the man who created Peter Pan, gave all of the money earned by various publications and licensing of that character to a a boys' school. It was sort of like a you know a a. I mean, it's not a reform school. It's the wrong way of saying it, but it was. Orphanage. It, it's an, it was an orphanage. It was an orphanage, but it's also an orphanage with an educational element to it, and. It, they extended the copyright law to cover that in order to allow that good cause to continue to benefit from this publication. And so that that hit the law first because it was old, much older mm-hmm. a character than, than was Mickey Mouse. And Disney used that to apply to a privately owned, not right, you know, not for charity sure. work. But with that in mind, and talk about Peter Pan. There's been very many very interesting kind of rejiggles on the Peter Pan mythos over the years. Sure, but uh, I want to get back to you know a death in comics that affected you. And yeah. I'm, I'm going to start that I think that I had been reading Amazing Spider-Man, mm-hmm. and the death of Gene DeWolf is one of my favorite runs on spider it's i think it's actually my absolute favorite run on spider-man including the the death of gwen stacy which i was very young when that was first published so i didn't read it until a little bit later when they were starting to republish it in marvel tales but um you know that dewolf was a character that only appeared every once in a while and she was murdered by a son of sam type um lunatic named the sin eater but the way that it was handled in the comic, it really gave a certain level of dignity to a character that was just considered, you know, a support cast. And it was one of the first times that that had happened. It felt a little bit rushed in that I hadn't, there hadn't been so many appearances by Gene DeWolf in the comic. So, it, you know, there's a little bit of that, well, was this character developed just to be able to kill off in 10 issues? But there was a, a history with her father being a a policeman on the beat as well, and there was a history of Officer DeWolf within the Spider-Man mythos. So it was a type of, you know, in-place character and an affecting death. And I wish that, you know, the comic had been able to grow up with the fan base, but I think that Marvel would say that the fan base left the comic, the comic didn't leave the fan base. And I understand that perception, and and I sort of do feel that that nihilistic period of the late 80s and 90s that kind of really saw the rebirth of my interest in comics. There wasn't a lot of comics in the newsstand for kids, and the ones that were were terrible. You know, you had the G.I. Joe comic was just really awful, and 
all of the superhero comics had these very adult storylines, very sophisticated storylines. And if it didn't have a sophisticated storyline, it was seen as kind of, you know, junk. So I'm I'm kind of happy sometimes when I see that publishers like Marvel or DC are still making comics that younger fans can appreciate because you have to get them in when they're young in order for them to maintain a lifetime of, of supporting the medium. And especially now when we've got so many other types of entertainment that people can drift off to, specifically video games. But um, was there a death in the comics that... Uh, that hit you particularly hard. Yeah, there were two, and then also a near death. The death of Superman back when it happened. Mm-hmm. This is before all the all the media marketing and the circus and everything. And mm-hmm. The John Byrne series, yeah, and Doomsday. Yeah, and... I mean, it was just obviously when it happened, nobody ever expected Superman to really die. Yeah, it was in the news. Yeah. It was on TV. They were doing interviews at the comic book store where I had bought the issue. Yeah. It was unreal because I'm not going to say that the death affected me because in the back of my mind, I knew that he would never really Yeah, you knew they were going to bring him back. But the idea that my childhood was over, (laughs) that if something that real can affect something that I had essentially grown up on, uh, that was a real life-changing point for me that I'm not in Kansas anymore. I'm, I'm in this real world, if you will. I think a lot of people would point to Jason Todd's death in the Death sure. of the Family line in Batman too, and that was sort of that was going down when right before Meltdown opened. So as mm. when we were still working at Fantastic Store, that was a really big thing. That and Nightfall back to back were, were kind of like the two things. Where he got his back. Where broken. Bane breaks Batman's right. back, and that it, Azrael comes out. Sure. Now in both instances, one thing that's good about that Batman storyline in the in the Nightfall storyline is that they were prepared for what was going to happen afterwards. Mm-hmm. Like, clearly, there was a plan at DC of how this was going to become these other things. Right. But the death of Superman seemed so poorly thought out of, like, what do we do after this? So random. Yeah. And then I think they realized that due to the unbelievable financial windfall, yeah, let's do this again. Yeah. And after that, I... I agree with Max Landis and his premise on this YouTube video. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but the death of Superman has effectively erased the meaning of death from comics. Yeah. That after that, it, it changed everything, and I, I get that. Yeah, I think that he was perhaps the most high... Well, not perhaps. I think undisputedly the most high-profile comic book character in history, and to have him killed. But this is very interesting, too, because in Crisis on Infinite Earths... Right which precedes this. So we're going to get super, we're going to get continuity here. We're going to get really nerdy. Nerdy. Um, George Perez and Marv Wolfman were behind one of the most beautifully illustrated comics ever. And it was, you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths was the first attempt ever to align all the confusing continuities at a company that had been around for 50 years at that point. So, and you see the 50 DC logo in the corner of most of the issues of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And the Anti-Monitor was this this bizarre character that seemed to be a kind of... I mean, if now we're looking at at quantum physics and we're thinking <laughs> that the world is a hologram, which we if look into that, people, pretty much every single thing you read about in quantum physics right now says that we are living in a hologram. Yeah, we're, we're in a, 2D, a two-dimensional existence. It's interesting. Well, the Anti-Monitor is that 30 years ago. Right. Which is kind of incredible. But Marv Wolfman was always a very gifted writer, and I always preferred, honestly, the Teen Titans to the X-Men storylines, but I liked the X-Men characters by and large more than I liked the the Titans, except for Robin, who's my absolute favorite character of all time, specifically Dick Grayson. Right, right. And I love his Batman, too. But the... Too bad he's an emotional wreck and can't hold a relationship. Oh! Anyway. (laughs) I I wonder how. Yeah. And as would anybody who has... A vigilante secret identity. Don't get me started. On whole other story. Starfire. Whole other, whole other episode. I got. I got one word. Starfire. That's yeah. it. Anyway, go ahead. So the you know the impact of that they killed off Supergirl, and they yep. killed off the Flash, and they killed off Supergirl on the cover of a comic book. Yeah, which they recreated in the Supergirl TV series. Yeah. So it's interesting that those deaths which were very high-profile deaths, certainly, mm-hmm. and those mm-hmm. those issues 
rose up in value pretty quickly among hard, hardcore collectors, but they're still not the kind of characters that the general public really cared about. Like right. people know the Flash, and the Flash was was you know had been around for a very long time. Was certainly on the Justice League cartoons, right? But the series had not launched yet. You know, the original series in which Mark Hamill played the trickster quite brilliantly. Right. Which led to him being the voice of the Joker on the animated series, I'm sure. But, you know, it it didn't still resonate with the general public. And again, there had already been two flashes (laughs) in in the DC Universe, which had to be addressed in that comic. And they had to kill off one of them in order to make this new, let's start fresh world. But they didn't do a (laughs) do-over. Those deaths meant something in the DC Universe. Like, it was like... We're simplifying things because there's just too many characters out there that nobody cares about. You know, the the Legion of Superheroes are in their own dimension and timeline, and they wanted the ability, I think, to be able to draw off of all these properties that had developed over 50 years, some characters that they had acquired from other publishers that had gone under, certainly Fawcett Publications and Shazam, and, um, you know, the whole Charlton universe, which wasn't really being utilized then, which was supposed to be the Watchmen, and then... Very wisely, I think, they, they decided to make it its own thing, and now they're mangling that again. Yeah. But um, I digress, as would Alan Moore, <laughs> that those deaths should have meant something, and yet because there was so much going on in Crisis on Infinite Earths, like every page was a new revelation, right. that those deaths just kind of got buried. They got swept under the, uh, the, by the, the wave. And that was the first also storyline that was an entire universe addressing a, a real threat in a very realistic way. And so when you see both companies, Marvel and DC, you know, cinematic universes mm-hmm. are putting together essentially the same story. Right. Because Darkseed predates Thanos. Sure. And that whole new gods entering the DC continuity was one of the most exciting stories at DC. It just happened to have taken place with characters that not too many people were reading comparatively. Right. So that Keith Giffen run on Legion of Superheroes, which ran for, I think, a decade, mm. was a really incredible storyline and kind of brought back those Kirby characters into the operative DC universe. And Thanos is very much a copy of the idea of Darkseid. And then... I believe it's Darkseid. Darkseid. Sorry. Well, there's also... Nerd um, out. Yeah. We, we could argue over that, too. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also um, the Mo- Mongol... Mm-hmm. A DC character, which is a copy of Thanos. Yes. So you've got, you know... And then there's Galacticus. And, well, Galacticus... Galactus, uh, Galactus is, yeah, is Galactus. earlier. Galactus is a different type of character, but definitely cosmic, and apparently he eats planets. Uh, it was kind of silly that, that he could change size. I've, I've never understood how you make a character like that work. That doesn't make any sense. But in, I think... But those, he brought a Silver Surfer. So. He did bring a Silver Surfer. And, and Nova and other people. Sure. Yeah. But the the idea of that really grandiose, you know, cosmic battle that requires that a bunch of superheroes unite to fight, you know, one ostensible threat is really, the first is really genuinely Crisis and Infinite Earths. And people can say that Secret Wars, I think Secret Wars came out a little bit earlier than Secret Wars 2 was after that. Yeah, Secret Wars was first with everyone was taken by the Beyonder to go fight, which I enjoyed. Yeah. Um, it's dopey. It's dopey, but it's cool because they were doing an early culling, like mm-hmm. right, like you were, like you're talking about, where they got everyone together, and some people didn't make it. They had already published a thing like that called Contest of Champions, exactly. And so Contest of Champions, that that's really kind of like a battle royale of superheroes, and it was great. It was all the, it was all your greatness mashups. Like, what if you know Thor so-and-so fought so and so, yeah, Storm. Oh, that'd be great. Like, yeah. And so then it took place in the moon too, which is kind of like sure. removes the threat to actual humanity. Yeah, yeah. They go to another dimension and yeah. blah blah blah. And it was written by Jim Shooter, so it was terrible. Hey. But the the idea of of things that have consequence really comes out of crisis and because DC wanted it to impact the entire DC universe, there were crossovers with every published comic, including Swamp Thing. You know, so I, I can see, I can picture in my head Alan Moore grimacing at the idea of having to write a story that features Superman and Batman, you know, or, yeah. or Hawkman as it was in an issue of Swamp Thing. Of Swamp, Saga yeah. of the Swamp Thing. That's interesting that you mentioned that because I was similarly thinking that 
recently Injustice 2 came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Injustice is a, a fighting game featuring DC superheroes where they fight each other. And the storyline is actually really interesting. Superman goes evil and they have to take him down. Mm-hmm. But Oh, just like Kingdom Come. It, exactly. But um, what's interesting to me is that this time in Injustice 2, they brought Swamp Thing into it. And I have always considered Swamp Thing kind of his own... Outside the DC con- yeah, con- like I mean, I know he technically resides in the same th- universe, yeah. but he's such a unique character and, and he deals... I mean, you want to talk about someone who deals with like real life issues, death, yeah. Yeah. Swamp Thing, yeah. you know, so... Yeah, the I'm surprised that that they brought him in. It's you never know why they make these. This maybe it was to get more attention to um, a well written comic. Sure, I you think know, Jeff Lemire is doing a really good job. Yeah, I mean, I have no no problem with that. I I just I also think it's probably they're going to do something marketing with him down mm-hmm. the line. Maybe bring him into the movies mm-hmm. or something. Now I am going to mention a comic, but I'm not going to say the character because I'm I'm convinced that a lot of people have never read it okay and mage sure so matt wagner's mage which is one of my absolute favorite series and that and grendel which both ran in the same book Mm -hmm. uh, matt wagner had created grendel first in a character that ran in kamiko primer and he brought it back in color as the backup story in mage from issue six onward and it's beautifully art deco designed uh, featurette in the back and it's basically the story of Beowulf in which um, Grendel the the villain the monster the monster is the good guy and uh, the wolf is is the bad guy and it takes place in corporate America and as actually does mage in an odd way mage is about uh, you know um, an everyday near do well named Kevin matchstick who loves wearing a black t-shirt with a white lightning bolt on it, and he is stricken with power after coming across this character named Mage, who may or may not be the Fisher King. And they have adventures... Which is a a reference to the Arthurian legend. Yes, yes. For those of us who don't know. And rather than a sword named Excalibur, he has a magic baseball bat. Yeah. So he runs into a bunch of other characters, and several of them are... I guess, possessed of ethereal powers in their own, and sometimes they don't even know it. And it took a long time for that comic to come out. So the story arc went like this, and I have very vivid memories of Watchmen number 12 coming out (laughs) one week after many delays, Sure. and Mage issue 14 and and 15 falling. So 14 came out two weeks later, and I think 15 came out a month and a half later due to publishing delays. And there were a lot of delays back then. And it was one of the things that really resulted in Capital City Comics um, kind of taking a dive, as, as did a lot of the other independent distributors, because if you don't have books, you don't have money coming in, and it's really terrible for everybody. But I remember that because a friend of mine, Mike Tetro, who's no longer with us, uh, teased me by telling me about Rorschach's death in Watchmen as I was reading the comic, like three pages before I hit it, and I wanted to kill him. And so I paid him back by getting to the store very early the next next week and and ruining a portion of, of Mage. But the deaths that occur in Mage because of the amount of time that it took for that, that comic to get published. And back in those days, and I'm not sure if people still do this, but if a comic wasn't monthly, if it was bi-monthly, and even if it was monthly, sometimes if it was really well done, you'd go back and reread the issues to catch yeah, pe- up. People do that. And if it's not too long of a story arc, it's, it's relatively easy to do. And not just where you start reading the new issue and you look back, but in anticipation of that new issue, you may go back and read the run. Right, because you, you're looking to fill this time and you're, you're, fixed, you're jonesing for the fix. Yeah. So you go back and you, re- you read it. And if you're somebody who wants to do comics, as, as I was and a lot of other people, maybe you're like tracing the pages or practicing drawing certain panels that you like. And, sure. and so I always had a bunch of comics open. And when characters in that comic died I, I was really I was hurt you know it affected mm-hmm. me emotionally and and there hasn't and again these these are people that died in heroic battle so mm-hmm. it's not the same type of thing that I'm talking about you right. know that started this conversation about realistic real world deaths and 
one could make the argument that superhero fiction is a type of escapist fantasy that you don't want to see real world death. You know, that if you want that, you can always go to the indie comics over at Fantagraphics, which are probably filled with it. But um, certainly when characters died in Love and Rockets after 10 years, that uh, there was a real, real emotional connection to the deaths of these characters. Uh, The death of Speedy in in that comic was one of those, those stories that really messed people up. You know, that people really lived in the lives of, you know, the locas in in the Love and Rockets world. And having had many conversations with um, the brothers from Hernandez, um, they were always, they're always bummed out when people want to license Love and Rockets and make an animated series. Mm. You know, to them, it's not animated. It's just them drawing the people that they knew growing up. Right. And it makes much more sense to them for that to be, you know, a live action TV show than sure. for it to be a, an animated show. So anybody who is is listening to this, uh, you could fast track a Love and Rockets <laughs> series by doing a live action and just think of the fan base that you'd be getting. You'd be pulling in uh, a, la- a Latin audience that isn't yeah. really following anything else on television. Be a good look. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people would cash in, I'm sure. So that being, I think we've probably taken this about as far as it can go, but I do encourage people to reach out. I want you to share with me you know, on social media, you can contact, you can email me at info at popsequentialism.com. You can um, go to our Facebook page and, you know, you can write on the wall about, you know, the the prominent deaths, or I mean, maybe not prominent deaths, but deaths in comics that affected you, you know, the characters that you were really, really enamored with or were just really wrapped up in the lives because of the, the beautiful storytelling that sent you for a loop, that messed up your day, you know, and... You know, how was the recovery from that? You know, after that happened, what was the next step for you? You know, because I think in in the creative arts, whether you're reading a book or whether you're reading a comic book or whether you're playing a video game or whether it's role-playing, you know, I can say that the death of, of one of my characters that I had been playing for years in Dungeons and Dragons, when that character died, I cried. I was messed up over it. I was really, really bereft. When uh when Optimus Prime died in Transformers the movie. Yeah. I, I cried. Yeah. There was a lot of kids that, that lost their lost well, their he was very much a father figure to me. Yeah. And I didn't realize it until I'm watching him on his yeah. deathbed. Yeah. And my aunt uh, who had taken me to see the movie, mm-hmm. did not understand why I was bawling in the theater. <laughs> because a car had died, yeah. Yeah, no, she was just, they, they had to rebuild him. And I was like, no, you don't understand. Yeah. I, but I also, very interesting, I didn't have the words or the concept to explain yeah. why I was so grief-stricken. And it took me, uh, they brought him back, of course. Yeah. But it took me, I mean, that messed me up for the better part of a year. Well, it's not like they made another movie. No. You know, they I, they brought it back in the in the TV series, in yeah. the two part miniseries, but um, which by the way, I would skip school twenty minutes early. I'd get out of class twenty minutes early and run home so I could watch it. Yeah, because I was so obsessed with them bringing them back. Right. Um, VCRs, yeah, VCRs, everybody. I didn't. We didn't have it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that was uh, that messed me up for the better part of a year. Yeah, yeah. I I I was a a little older than the target audience for that when mm-hmm. it happened. But I remember hearing about it, um, I think via my next door neighbor who was really, really into it. And he was like, his day was gone. His day oh, was yeah. ruined. Interestingly enough, that drove him straight into heavy metal. Oh, cool. The death of Optimus Prime drove him straight into Iron Maiden. Wow. <laughs> yeah, like it, it was, it, it was a, a- People grieve. It was a nihilistic enough experience yeah. for him. It, it, was, yeah. it was so soul destroying. Yeah. That uh, he had to go to heavy metal. Wow, man. But um, and I'm a huge heavy metal fan, so I, I mean no disparagement at all by that. Iron Maiden's amazing. Yeah. And it, this is interesting, too. I've seen a lot of Iron Maiden shirts out there lately, and I have been for the better part of a year in discussions with um, with Derek um, Riggs about doing an exhibition of his work in Los Angeles, and I'm just trying to line up how to make that work. Cool. So we'll see if that happens. But um, again, you know, reach out to us and and let us know what what those those stories were. You know, what were the things that really affect you? I'm sure that kids of a certain age, Harry Potter books were the thing. You know, like the, the deaths of major characters in those were like the deaths of beloved I've, friends and relatives. I've definitely seen 
numerous people post make posts about oh you know this such and such died in harry potter oh my god yeah those jerks posting about yeah. that right after no they... no no i just because <laughs> you, you, you when something's very popular yeah uh, it goes in waves yeah you know so you, so one day you turn on and everybody's oh it says harry potter and later it, it was the, i remember when the red wedding hit mm-hmm. on hbo yeah and um the red wedding oh. from game of thrones game of thrones and <sighs> walking dead you know, oh for sure game of thrones yeah. and walking dead have really messed with people's emotions mm-hmm. via television series mm-hmm. and in tv you get to do that but again it, it's not often they're you know they're getting eaten by zombies or you know right. they're uh you know they're getting murdered by their relatives right uh in in these series but definitely you've spent week after week in some cases year after year with characters and and when they are taken away from yeah. you it hurts i did not go back to walking dead after the death of glenn even though i knew it was coming right because i just wasn't ready you know that 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 previous season it goes through, was it goes gut-wrenching yeah it goes to what you're saying i mean you you build emotional connections these these characters become your friends essentially mm-hmm. your people that you care about not that not the actors but the the characters and the stories that you you know you follow along on tv mm-hmm. and that's you know you can argue is that a good thing or a bad thing but um people do it yeah people get very attached to these fictional characters yeah and i think that especially with with walking dead that in the comic that there were a lot of people who stopped reading after issue 100 it had, had oh, a significant. That, it did that, have a significant drop off. I've never read the comic. Is that when issue one hundred? Is when yeah, I when when Glenn dies, and but previously, like I had been reading the comic, and I dropped out after the ba- the death of Baby Judith, oh, which okay. happened in the comic and did not happen in the TV series. A TV killing a baby is is very. It, it's still risque. Yeah, I mean, um, my favorite note on that is uh, I'm a I'm a diehard huge 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 fan of the Battlestar Galactica miniseries mm-hmm. the four-part miniseries that then went on to spawn the three season uh or I'm sorry four season Battlestar Galactica TV series because it was so popular but um I was listening to the commentary and there there is a part where it is not shown but extremely heavily implied that the Cylon uh six in the red dress uh kills a child mm. and um and I was listening to the the writer's uh, commentary, and they were saying that after that scene, there was a dramatic 50% drop in their ratings. Yeah. That because after that, people just flipped to a different channel. Again, escape is fantasy. That oh, maybe, for sure. Maybe we just don't want that level of reality. I well, think in the case- to see the death of children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go to Disneyland on a Saturday. Well, but um, the- um, I, I'm joking, of course. I would never advocate the, the death of children. But the- the thing about like shows like Game of Thrones and show more ga- shows like Walking Dead is that it's sort of a type of pity porn that you're seeing these people go to the most extreme emotional crises again and again and again. I mean, there isn't a word that exists for the type of post-traumatic stress that all these characters have gone through. Sure. And I mean, it's... You know, we it's it's funny, but it's really not funny. You know, it's like it's it's such it's such a really tragic thing that if you were to apply the amount of tribulation that they've gone through into the life of any normal human being, I think they'd all crack. I don't think that yeah. anybody can absorb the amount of suffering that any of these characters have yeah. have taken without damage. Severe. I mean, like suicide, like yeah, suicide, just like right, leaving. It's, it's interesting that you say that, because that is something that I have seen, uh, particularly in in recent times and and young adult literature, mm-hmm. where they have these characters go through hell, and then there's not really a happy ending. Like they they get together with people, and and you know they they get together with their quote love, but mm-hmm. the relationships are messed up. Yeah, and I guess. The one that popped into my head most recently is, of course, Hunger Games. I don't yeah. know if you read the book. At the end, because of her repeated yeah. <laughs> Hunger Games experiences, she's having traumatic nightmares. She yeah. can't sleep. She's emotionally distant from everyone. And the only person that she can kind of get with is uh, Peter, who is also... Uh, traumatized by his experience. Extremely traumatized yeah. and... They they kind of fit, but like, but she openly talks in the book about how like, I don't I don't really think I can bring children into this world. Yeah, I don't. 
you know, I don't really trust humans anymore. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we hang out because we kind of get each other, but I don't know if love is really in it. That's a very, the very, very good thing that someone has put that articulated into a page and especially in a YA novel, you know. Yeah, I was really shocked. But, But I was also like, all right, you know, like, good good on you man is it narcissism or is it realism you know like right. it's a it's a weird mix yeah and it makes you think which i think is is the goal i haven't seen the third movie so i don't know how it ends in the third movie but yeah, yeah. I, I saw the first one i'm like this isn't for me <laughs> but uh i sort of expected it to be more like battle royale i don't know why <laughs> whereas <Oof>. instead <laughs> but of course what you know what wound up being much more like battle royale was belco experiment which is sort of like right. lord of the flies meets die hard right, right, right. and um it, Go see it. It's incredibly graphically violent, and I'm not saying it just because I'm in it, but um, <laughs> that I was really impressed with them putting a new spin on on something that is, number one, so beloved, mm-hmm. but um, also that it was different enough that it wasn't a straight rip. Right. Um, and that said, we have reached the end of another episode of Pod Sequentialism. I have been your host, Matt Kennedy. We've also been listening to our engineer, Mason Booker. And producer. And producer. And um, I want to let everybody know that there's a couple of... You may have noticed in the the numbering of the episodes, there's a missing episode. And it is an episode that was recorded, and it was an, an episode that we could not release because of the information in the episode and the connection of the person who had given that information to the the information itself and that it would have been a bad a bad thing possibly if that knowledge had become public to the people who employ him <laughs> i guess is the easiest way of saying that and yeah. and so we it was something that we went back and forth on for quite a bit we almost released the episode with um with a masking over the voice and um, there was a worry about the cadence being identifiable. And then ultimately I, I just made the decision not to pursue releasing it. And I'm going to try and either get the guests back to talk about some more general stuff or just dive into that episode and discuss what was discussed without, you know, making it, obvious who we were speaking to i see because i do think that it is important an important subject and i do think that it's interesting it's very interesting but it affects everybody yeah. and now we sound like we're being really cryptic but um <laughs> tag you know definitely tune into the show and go back and listen to some of the the past shows to kind of scrape for the little gems and knowledge that we stick out there that really do affect everyday life that's not just strictly about comics but I know that also, and I've, I've been getting a lot of a lot more contact lately, which I really, really like, about you know people wanting to get into collecting original comic book art, and they're they're visiting my you know pop sequentialism website, and you know, people going to comic art fans and buying stuff there. But also just people who are saying that they're listening to the show and it's encouraging them to to just like you know get off the pot or you know or poop, you know that it people are really starting to realize that it's demystified. You can just do stuff. You can publish yourself. I had someone come and visit me at La Luz de Jesus the other day, uh, who had who was visiting from Argentina and said that he's publishing his own comic as a direct result of listening to the show, and that makes me feel great. And I want to hear about those stories. I definitely want to hear about. You know what's motivating you? Has have has there been a guest on the show that you were really really happy to hear from? And did their words resonate with you? And were they encouraging? Were they discouraging? You know, did it lead you to make um, a decision against possibly doing this for a living? Because if you're listening to the show, you realize that no one's getting rich, or very few people are. That it is really for love of the game. So contact us. You know, reach out on at at podsec p o d s e q. Uh, follow us pod sequentialism on Facebook. Twitter and Instagram. Send me an email at popsequentialism info at popsequentialism.com and advertisers you too can reach this primary demographic. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. 
And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's Blind Box Toys or Little Tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.